All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to another edition of the Bizzlecast here with Papa Bizzle today to talk some TV, online streaming, otherwise. Uh, Papa Bizzle, welcome back as always. Thanks. Great to be back. Looking forward to talking about these shows. So um, me, me and my dad have, have a couple shows that we've been uh, kind of been wanting to talk about for a while. Um, we've also been uh, trying to figure out, you know, what I'm calling the orphan black strategy, which is trying to figure out how we can rewatch some or all of orphan black before June 10th. Uh, me and my dad are going to be going away together in a couple weeks um, for a couple weeks. So I don't know if that's going to be possible. Um, but either way, Dad, uh, can just reassure the listeners that we will be covering Orphan Black very closely. Uh, if, if it's my last dying breath, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it. Straight from uh-huh. the horse's mouth. Um, so, uh, so welcome back to my dad. And uh, we're going to be talking um, about a few shows today, um, maybe a movie or two, if you guys are lucky. Um, now, the shows we're going to be talking about today are either from streaming services online initially or, you know, became available very quickly to streaming services and were even popularized further uh, because of them. Um, as you may know out there, um, Breaking Bad uh, didn't really become popular until season three when they made the, the series available on Netflix. And at, at that point, I don't know if you remember this, um, I think it was after season three when there was that first wave of awards for the Orphan Black, I'm sorry, for the uh, Breaking Bad people. Yes. Um, and they thanked, I can't remember who it was, if it was Aaron Paul or one of the, I think it was uh, Vince Gilligan, actually, who in his Emmy or Golden Globe speech thanked Netflix openly um, oh. for, uh, you know, giving them visibility, essentially, and, and getting them a cult following. And now it's considered one of the great shows ever. But, you know, when it was season three, as good as it was, people forget that it was almost canceled, you know, season after season at that point. They weren't really sure. Just- Astounding, um, and uh, you know now Netflix shows are winning uh, are winning awards. That was sort of right. the beginning. I mean, the, Netflix I think was having original content back in you know twenty ten twenty eleven, um, but it was around that time that they started doing shows like House of Cards. Right? It seems, um, Dad, r- just really quickly, House of Cards seems to have been the catalyst for the Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu uh, original content. Is that your recollection as well? That's my impression, right? I haven't, you know, done any looking at it, but I, I think that that is how it unfolded. Yeah, yeah, that seems to have been the first one. And uh, while Netflix um, was kind of the first uh, on on board um, that train, uh, now all the major services are doing it. Um, and uh, I actually think that Amazon Prime is doing it better in some ways. I think part of it is just that, and we're going to get into some specifics here, that Amazon Prime just carries the types of shows I'm more interested in, either oh. their original oh. content or The Night Manager, mm. which we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes which was on AMC and did great, but really took off um, when it was available online on Amazon and people could, could you know, binge the whole thing. Um, commercial Free has a ton of hits on uh, Amazon, does uh, Night Manager. And uh, because Amazon, you know, is licensing um, stuff, uh, you know, they, it, they seem to have more, um, well, <laughs> I guess it's not a stretch to say that they may have more res- resources, even the powerful Netflix because of, of Bezos, right? 
Yeah, that's that's certainly uh, possible. Yes, it's really rich. Right. Um, so we're going to talk about the Night Manager a lot because I've been teasing it, and it is an incredible show that my dad um, loved to death, rewatched, loved even more. Really tried to get me to watch, um, and I I finally you know cornered myself and and binged the entire thing in a day essentially. Um, that's how hooked I was on it. Yeah. I want to give it a full discussion, but um, as per uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, I had been saving a show uh, for a while that I knew was very popular on Amazon Prime called Sneaky Pete, which starred one of my favorite sort of uh, off-kilter stars for the last couple decades, Giovanni Ribisi, who's been in everything from Friends to Avatar over the years, and it's just a very quirky character, and I was hearing great things, and then I heard Brian Cranston was one of the co-creators um, of the show, and I watched the first episode and was immediately hooked and probably watched the whole thing in two or three days. This is one of those Amazon pilot projects where in late 2015 they ran, if you can believe it, that just the pilot, and then the fan response was so great they did uh, they commissioned an entire 10 episode season. Um, it, it was the second most w- uh, watched show in its in its premiere ever on Amazon, second to uh, only um, Man in the High Castle. Um, Wait, the, the, the premiere being the pilot or the no the, the when they dropped the full series about got it. Got three it. months ago, like early mid. January, Um, and then within six days of release, it was so popular and so downloaded that they immediately greenlit a second season, Uh, and uh, I got my dad to watch it. He watched a couple episodes tonight. I haven't heard anything about it, so Papa Bizzle, initial impressions on Sneaky Pete. You know, I I, I always try to figure out what it is about um, these shows that, that are able to grab you instantaneously for me, like Orphan Black, first episode, Sneaky Pete, first episode, just right away, I just feel totally comfortable with what they're doing, the, uh, the, the, the writing, the characters, the, the cinematography. I don't know what it is. Uh, I, maybe it's the whole package, mm-hmm. but it, it's, uh, it's wonderful. I mean, it is really, really good. I really like what they're they're doing um, with with the characters, the dialogue, um, the way it's directed and edited. I mean, it just it just you know it, it seems pretty perfect to me. So um, I, I fucking love this show, and it just gets better, Dad. It actually, if you look at the ratings uh, per episode on Amazon, each one gets rated better than the previous one, which almost never happens mm. over the course of a whole season. <laughs> but the, uh, the 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 pilot in episode two are, are darn good. So without giving away too much, people, and we'll revisit this once my dad finishes it, maybe do a quickie on it uh, whenever he finishes it, is uh, Giovanni Ribisi's character is a a skilled but occasionally sloppy con man um, who... Um, gets caught uh, trying to con uh, Brian Cranston's uh, character. Uh, he is in the show as well, playing a very different sort of bad guy than Walter White, um, and uh, who's sort of a uh, under the radar crime lord. Um, and uh, in um, shoot, where are they? At Bridgeport, Connecticut? It, no, well, no. Brian Cranston's uh, operations in New York. The show takes place yes. in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, but anyways, so Rabisi's uh, character, um, whose name is Marius, which I love as a lay Miz guy. It's it's <laughs> right. so funny because he's completely unmarius in every way possible. Um, that Marius uh, is about to leave prison, and on his the day before he's released, his brother, who's being held hostage by Brian Cranston, basically says, "You still owe 
you know, uh, this guy, you know, 100,000 bucks or whatever, they're coming after you. They're going to kill you and they're going to torture me. And so he realizes that he needs to pull off his biggest con ever, which is to take over someone else's identity. And he happens to have a roommate who looks enough like him and has a backstory, you know, uh, and the prisoner for three straight years is just talking about uh, who's Pete, whose identity he takes, is just talking about all these stories about his childhood and his family and uh, and uh, you know there's this great gag in the first like two or three minutes of the show where you know he hates and is so annoyed at this guy um is marius and can't wait to get out but then he realizes he needs to steal someone's identity and he's just like fuck it he starts asking the guy more questions he steals the guy identity um and then you know the the remainder of the show is you know can he uphold the identity um and i'm not going to reveal the big twist uh there's a million twists but Mm, um mm. let's just say that uh, the, the family that he uh, ends up trying to impersonate Pete in as a long lost cousin who they hadn't seen in 20 years since he was a little kid, which is part of why he could get away with it. Um, it the family has a lot of problems of their own, and that's part of why he's able to, to do what he does um, in his yeah. developing relationship with them over the course of the series. Um, it's not surprising, Dad, that Brian Cranston would be behind this because there are some Breaking Bad elements to it. I don't know if you picked up on any of that in the first couple episodes. Well, I, I was really surprised to see that he uh, he was a co-creator and actually um, wrote co-wrote all, you know all the episodes. I mean, it's really impressive. Well, no, he did that. story. They wrote the they wrote the pilot and they directed the pilot, and then they they did bring in writers to flesh out the episodes. Um, but he, he's still doing the showrunner. Like if you look at the credits, they do have a different writer and director on the episodes. But they did the entire story. Well, well here, here they say series writing credits. Brian Cranston created ten. David yeah. Shore created ten, and then they have the, the another half a dozen writers that were yeah. involved in a couple of episodes here, a couple of episodes there. Right, because when you're when you're when you're an active showrunner on a show like this, you're going to get a writing credit on every, if uh, not all, episodes. Yeah, I see. Yep, I mm-hmm. see. Yep, um, but yeah, he's the he's the he's the brains behind it with a with a, with a David somebody who I'd never heard of and I don't really recognize his resume, um, huh. and you know people credit his obviously Brian Cranston being behind it and being in it as initially driving interest, but we know that that can only last so long. And I mean, again, you've only seen two episodes, but I, mm. it only takes about two seconds before you buy into Giovanni Ribisi's character. I thought. Yeah, and I'm I really haven't tracked his career at all, so I, I wasn't as tuned into him as 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 you are. Um, I recognize his face, and, and that's about it. And uh, you know, he does a great job um, in uh, in executing this this starring role. He's really good. So sometimes I just get a feeling about a show, Dad, that even though none of my friends told me about the show and I didn't know much about it, but you can just put pieces together. And so when I when the pieces came together, when I was investigating whether I was going to watch the show. He was a guy that I loved in every role he was in, even though he's in all sorts of bizarre stuff over the years. He played, you know, Phoebe's dumb brother on Friends. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. And uh, he also, but he also, in my opinion, was by far the best part of Avatar because he's the douchey, evil, megalomaniac, mm. capitalist, corporate, greedy asshole that's behind the whole exploitation 
thing, but you love right. him because right. he's like playing golf on his spaceship. He's like putting in his spaceship office while the planet's going to shit, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also is Scarlett Johansson's douchey husband in Lost in Translation who had to sell that he oh. wasn't a horrible guy, but gave, oh. you know, gave the audience an emotional out or a moral out to that, you know, we're okay with her dilly dallying a little bit because he was a, a very much an absentee uh, mm-hmm. husband and kind of a dick. And they, they married, you know, from high school or from college. Like, you know, it was like one of those just marriages I that see. wasn't meant to be. Um, he just, he, he can play bad guys, you know, but without ever grading on you. Um, yes. and this brings me to my yeah, next, but, but yeah, I mean, sorry. he's, he, he's, he's really not a, I mean, he's not, he's not a, a bad guy, bad guy. He's, he's sort of a, a charming grifter, you know, a, a charming con man who's very smart, very, very clever. Um, in terms of the parallels with, uh, Breaking Bad, I mean, you know, you, you feel a little bit of a Vince Gilligan, um, influence on Cranston here in terms of the plot line is very clever. There's a lot of very clever plot twists so that that reminded me of breaking bad um to to one degree and then a lot of these characters aren't who they seem to be and they have a you know a a a public side and then a a larcenous uh other side so that's a little bit reminiscent of breaking bad but i like the fact that brian cranston's uh, kind of mid-level kind of mob guy mm-hmm. uh, is not anywhere. Well, maybe he is actually after this second episode. Is he is almost as, as evil as uh, as uh, Heisenberg was? Not quite as bad, but he's not quite as heavy. But. Um, I guess we're not do- doing any spoilers, huh? The, 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 yeah. Well, no. I mean, you've only seen two episodes, so go for it. I won't spoil the rest of the season. Um, he does that, turn out to be way different than Heisenberg. Go out, yeah. Yes. Yeah. N- n- nowhere near as evil, except that uh, the scene where the the very extended scene where where the con blew up and uh, and Marius was was busted by Brian Cranston's character Vince, and then he then he shoots in cold blood um, M- Marius's uh, you know confederate. I mean, that was pretty shocking. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't. Ex- I didn't see that coming. Yeah, I mean, he his character is. I, I'm not going to judge him on the evil scale, but he's definitely doesn't have the occasional moral twangs of guilt, pangs of guilt that Walter right. White has um, okay. for most of the show. Uh, he, yes. This guy's more of a straight up, just narcissistic bad guy. Um, yeah, I mean, this character is like what Walt would have been if he had been single without a family and could have just risen straight into a crime lord and not have to have things pulling at him. You know what I mean? Because ultimately, it's his family that unravels everything from a crime standpoint in Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, yeah. well, this this guy, Vince, I mean, he appears to be a lifelong criminal, mm-hmm. un- unlike... Unlike, uh, yep. uh, w- w- not Walt. Heiser, what, Walt, unlike Walt, who had, a, you know, who had a, uh, upstanding middle-class life until all hell breaks loose. So yeah. it's very different. The, the, the etiology of the characters personality is very different in, in that sense. And they, uh, just to keep it vague, they do share two key qualities though. Both of them are, are self-made and resent people who were handed money. 
Oh, uh, which oh. you haven't gotten to that supply. No, but that oh. becomes important. Um, okay. he, he, you know, he's new, he's new money, self-made and he, he resents old money people. Um, and, uh, also they have both have a narcissistic need for other people to see them as not as bad as they are. Oh, okay. Like they, they, they're seeking approval even while claiming that they don't care about other people's approval. Interesting. All right. So there was that. So, again, okay, so I'm starting to get interested in the show. I'm researching it. Cranston's involved. And then I realized that not only do Rabisi and, uh, and Aaron Paul share a passing resemblance to one another, at least in their stature, and just sort exactly. of... Exactly. The, yeah. Their stature is very, very similar. Yep. They're, they're t- tiny and thin, right. and they have yes. very distinctive-looking f- heads, um, they're, they're both kind of guys that look both like regular guys and slightly, you know, good, more good. I mean, good looking than the average bear, obviously, but they look like regular dudes for the most part. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but what I also realized was that, and again, this was before I even watched an episode was that, you know, if you look at Rubisi back in lost in translation days, which was like 13, 14 years ago, he was doing this sort of, um, speaking with ticks and pauses and stuff like that before a lot of people were like now everyone does that you know the the stunt the stunted uh you know stopped in mid-sentence awkwardness um and also you know when they lie you can't tell if they're being bad liars or whether that's part of the shtick you know Mm -hmm. jesse Mm -hmm. pinkman too you know sometimes got away with with bad lies um if because just by sort of confusing people what's going on anyways i just felt like there were connections and when i saw that there were cranston was behind it and was going to be in it and it was a caper show that was the final piece yeah i'm going with this these guys in this premise if this is anything like breaking bad i'm gonna love it and i fucking loved it I mean, it was really good. And on top of that, the supporting cast, and you haven't really gotten to know his family members yet, so we'll, we'll let this go for now in a sec, because I cannot wait for you to see how screwed up the family really is. Um, but the the, uh, the the female uh, kind of co-lead, uh, Marin Ireland, who was so good in Homeland Season 2 as the female terrorist, the white female terrorist who forms a relationship with Saul, and tries to work the system and he's trying to work her and really she's just trying to kill herself once they arrest her and she ends up killing herself and it's kind of sad you know and uh it's playing a completely different character here i always dad thought she looked so much like the orange is a new black uh woman Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i don't know if if you thought that i know that you, you you've been enjoying her performance so far and we really love that relationship with saul and homeland and but I also fell in love with her a second time. There was a a one year uh, a drama series called the Divided, where she was a uh, uh, a lawyer or a paralegal. I thought it was a tremendous drama. Eight eight shows, but it didn't get re upped. I must have been the only one um, who, who who loved it, and she she was the lead. Um, so I, I know her really well from that show as well. And then I, I know Grandma really well, M- Margot Martindale, who plays o- Grandma Audrey, mm-hmm. um, because she was in Justified, one of the handful of superb villains in in Justified, and I believe she's also in Weeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a, a number of seasons yep. so i've seen her a lot she's a little bit to me like the um like our um uh olivia uh 
uh, uh, Coleman, hmm. you know, uh, the, the, the American version of British uh, Olivia Coleman from sure. uh, Night, Night Manager, etc. Yes, yeah, that's uh, so funny. I thought of a very similar thing when I was watching her. I was oh, really? If, yeah, I was wondering if you had, we're going to have a sim, uh, similar um, oh. reaction. Uh, we're also missing a huge one in that she was in Hell or High Water as the estranged wife of Chris Pine. Character. Yeah, I yeah I, I just I did notice that uh, an hour ago when I was looking at stuff, but you know it's not a not a big role, and uh, um, she's not in, in the movie that that much. She um, no, she's not, but it's a key part of the of the film. Yeah, yeah um, it is. She just has that sort of almost slightly trashy American look that's also sexy and very relatable at the same time. It's hard to put your finger on. Um, it has something to do with her. She's got those big eyes and she's got kind of, um, I don't know if they, if they highlight this for the ship, but they, you know, they, they put st- all this stuff around her eyes. She just, she, she, I don't know. She feels like middle America, mm-hmm. which was really important for this role, obviously in hell or high water, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, it's, the fact that you didn't notice her much in hell or high water almost proves that she did a great job because she just blended right into the role. Um, and here she she's you know a, ma- a single mom trying to juggle family responsibilities. Um, her character takes a million turns. Oh my god, it's absolutely crazy. So she's great in it. The whole family's fantastic. Yes. Also, the husband, the uh, grand grandpa, yeah, was the judge uh, in the wire. The who who was mostly a good guy judge because um, Pearlman, the redhead, was always flirting with him to get favorable stuff. Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, and speaking of the wire, yeah, we 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 got another guy from the wire in the first two episodes. Um, uh, you know the 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 bad guy that that they're that they're hunting down uh, for the for the jump and bail thing. He uh, was he was he was one of the cops. Uh, oh wait, the guy who they were hunting down for the bail. Yeah, where where's his? Ca- I'm, I'm looking at the list here and. Uh, you know the big uh, the big thug who pops who pops Marius and uh, oh D- Dominic Lombardozzi yeah right <gasps> yeah 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 who plays Herc <laughs> yeah right he was Herc right exactly yeah. in, in the Wire right he's the worst in the Wire oh my god <laughs> he also he also plays the, the I don't know if you remember this a multi season arc in one of the earlier Entourage seasons he plays one of their like deadbeat friends from New York who's trying to right. mooch off them right right yep um, and he also plays the evil father of young version of Vincent D'Onofrio in. Uh, who beat him and beat his mom in uh, oh, Daredevil. Right. Daredevil, right. Yeah, I think you're right. Right? He was like a union uh-huh. guy or something. He was like a, yeah. a yeah. worker. Yeah. In uh in Daredevil. Yeah. That was a really scary role, actually. Doesn't he beat his mom to death or something crazy? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Bill Fisk, yeah. Is the character. Um, yeah. you won't be recognized and this is in a good way. Um, and then we're going to move on to night manager. You won't be recognizing that many sort of guest stars. Um, and, uh, 
if <laughs> if his quote unquote little high school cousin Carly looks a little old, it's because she's twenty six, which was the only problem. Oh my goodness! Because <laughs> I remember being like, she's kind of cute, but I feel really skeevy about this. But she does not look sixteen, and I looked her up. She's twenty six. <laughs> but it's cl- it becomes more clear as the ep- as the season goes on with her character why they needed an older actress because she carries oh. some major heavy duty uh, drama as well as comedy as the season All goes right. on. So All they right. just well, fuck it, yeah. Well, it's off to a great start. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm totally hooked. I can see why you you binged it. Yeah. Um, it's got that kind of uh, gripping plot thing that was going on with, like I said before, with Breaking Bad and how Vince Vince Gilligan does does plots, yeah. although he's doing it very different in, in Better Call Saul. We'll, we'll get to that, but yeah. Um. So yeah, it's great. Thanks for uh, sure for turning me on to it i didn't even have it on on my list i don't think until you uh you pointed me at it in the last uh, handful of days so it's great yeah and uh really quick we'll close up uh, the, the the other major breaking bad connection is you know part of what's fun in breaking bad with the macgyver stuff is learning about all the chemicals and how they work and all the equipment yes. here yes. it's about all different kinds of cons and they talk yes. about it openly by the end of the the 10 episodes they've you know either talked about or performed like two or three dozen different kinds of cons yes and there's cons within cons within cons but what they do so well is that the cons don't always work for everyone involved so you know and you never know who's you know who's working someone on like a double or triple layer con sort of thing right they've, um, they've just yeah. run they've just run the sting com you know the classic sting con and they they've been alluding to some turk con that i don't even know what that is yet but they've alluded to it about 11 times yeah yeah it's well the turk is was that um was the fake atom it, the classic fake automaton um in the 1800s oh. in i was it russia oh um and it was um it, it was programmed to um what was it 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 it, 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 it it's often referred to in regards to hoaxes because i think they had someone manipulating well they had they had someone like under the table or under the floor manipulating this thing and people thought it was a robot and this was before there were robots and i don't know if you remember that in in season one of sarah connor chronicles the name of the ai thing they're trying to get is called the turk yes um and so uh, in this case uh the turk is is basically a foolproof con i think um it's it's been a couple it's been like a week uh and i don't know if when they break that out again but i think they're referring to you know a a con that is is being manipulated to such a degree that it's it's foolproof or or seemingly foolproof um so lots of surprises in store there it's great to see that there are you know just shows that like this that'll just come out and really surprise us so this will be a good transition into night manager um you've talked about it on past podcasts before i'd seen it and then I mentioned it briefly on some podcasts with Matt on a TV podcast. And uh, we just, we've sort of talked about it together a little bit, but not really online. Um, so uh, we should probably set it up uh, for the listeners um, uh, who, who haven't seen it or haven't heard us talk about it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to point out really quickly, by the way, that Sneaky Pete... Uh, has 57,000 reviews on Amazon uh, with 4.6 out of 5 stars. I've never seen anything close to that number. And wow. if you uh, if you use the, you know, 5 to 10% um, 
you know, uh, rule about super fans or whatever that mm-hmm. something that we used to talk about in Modiba about, you know, the, 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 the critical mass number for super, we get 5% to be super fans. Yeah. Those are the people who will watch it numerous times and review it and take time to review it and so forth. Um, that's a million watchers right there. Yep. Um, yep. and I think it's probably, it's probably going to end up being, um, or ended up being more than, than that. Um, and, uh, that being said, night manager, which, you know, was on AMC and premiered on BBC and other networks around the world. I think it was a co-production of AMC and BBC, mm. um, is on Amazon prime and is free now and uh has f- 13 exactly 13,000 reviews. Hmm. So for a show that's not native to Amazon, has an unbelievable number of views, has 4.7 out of 5 stars with 81% and a 5 star um range. So wow. this is a show that definitely took on second life, I think, once it, it became is. available online. Beautiful. It, we already talked about our Golden Globes podcast, how many awards it won. We've already praised uh, uh, Hiddleston, uh, Olivia Coleman, uh, and Hugh Laurie. Um, I guess the performance, um, I'll, well, why don't we just talk generally about it, Dad, and then we can we'll talk about the episodes. The, the, the performer and the performance I was least sure about going in was, uh, was Hugh Laurie, because I never watched House, although I knew that people either liked house but even people that didn't love house i know that he was just well respected for that role yes the same way cranston was well respected on his sitcom even though it was still just like a sitcom like mm-hmm. cranston was still liked and won awards and stuff for being on uh malcolm in the middle um and, and you know i had seen him on house with a flawless american accent now you, you mentioned that he was on veep for a couple of years uh yep. with a flawless american accent here he's n- not american whatsoever he's very english and very evil um right. and as great as hiddleston and olivia coleman are uh, my my um mvp trophy personally for this show goes to hugh laurie because mm. he delivers by far the most dialogue and, uh, you know, how he's a supporting actor and uh, Hiddleston is the lead actor, I think, was, had more to do with getting them both awards. And it worked. Mm-hmm. He actually has more speaking lines. Hmm. So you, you want to just give a quick overview about what the show is about and then we'll dive into it? Oh, I thought you were going to do uh, like a little episode by episode. Oh, no, I uh, am. I am. I just mean the general okay. premise. So right. who, it, who, the, who the book's by, you know, like the general yeah. premise. Well, you know, it's by uh, our master storyteller, John Le Carre, who, you know, I've read, uh, I mean, he's written, what, probably a few dozen books. I've only read probably a half a dozen of them, but e- each one is, is tremendous. He's a tremendous storyteller. Um, and if you like, you know, the intrigue genre, um, the spy intrigue genre that he does. And and then once the Cold War was over, he he expanded that uh, genre some. And so this is a, an arms dealer, uh, an international arms dealer story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's... Uh, it's uh, you know it's like on a on a on a tightrope the whole the whole way through which is what he's he's known for, and it's uh, is it's a very gripping story. Uh, it's got beautiful beautiful settings um, in uh, Switzerland and what's the wh- where's the fortress, Jess? It's uh, well, it's supposed to be in Spain. Off of Spain, yeah, it's off of Spain somewhere. It's supposed to be in Spain. Um, 
And yes, in fact, it was it was supposed to be in Majorca, and it was in Majorca, or at least the the exteriors were. Okay, yes. I'm not sure right. where the interiors were. I think probably UK um, based right. interiors. Yeah. Right. Um. So. Uh, if, if, you, if you want to do an episode by, by episode yeah thumbnail. sure well let's just be pointed out Lakari wrote this in 93 I believe and oh so, so it was, it was back okay it was back in 93 so huh. they had to adjust the um, uh, the story to the present day and they you know the, the guy who did the screenplay David Farr was the you know was the one to do so um, this was definitely with Lakari's blessing um, and uh, I think he actually had a cameo in one of the episodes oh did he mm-hmm Huh. Um, to me, that huh. I immediately could tell it was Lacare because there were some similar feels to um, Constant Gardener in terms uh-huh. of a um, uh-huh. you know a mid-level, it's sort of British administrator essentially. I know he was a hotel guy with the army pass, but in terms of the role that he was fulfilling in society, it was somewhat similar to you know being a mid-level diplomat for the, for you know the english uh government yes. or whatever right. um and someone who uh is kind of used to being pushed around as part of their job um and has to kind of sack up a little bit um and in terms of just the name i remember being like the night manager is just a terrible name and then when you watch it you you're like you realize how sort of ironic and fitting it is <laughs> yes right because right, it's it's right. in fact his ability to you know go sleepless for days at a time that allow him to do the things that he does that's a good point. Um, but also, like, The Constant Gardener. I remember when that movie came out, being like, it's a horrible name. And Wasad, I'm like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. But it totally yeah. fits. That's exactly yeah. what his character is. He's a constant <laughs> gardener. Like, that's, right. you know, he's, he's right. you know, he's slow, but he's persistent. And he's diligent. I'm talking about Constant Gardener. Where yeah. he finds his character, you yeah. know. He, um has a natural affinity for, for, you know, naturalness, if you will. Uh Um, uh, you know, he doesn't, uh, he, he, he lives in the sun, not in the shade, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's why he has trouble getting into that world. Mm -hmm. Um, and this was the opposite. This was a guy who lived in the shade and who was in the army and so forth. And so when he gets flipped by Olivia Coleman to go after Hugh Laurie's character, Richard Roper, not the reviewer, (laughs) um, you know, it, it, it makes more more sense but like in constant gardener even though this guy has military training would he ends up having to use the military training for uh tom hiddleston's character um jonathan pine uh, what he uses the the military training for is not what you think um it's not really going around shooting people and being james bond for the most part it's much more subtle Mm-hmm. Um, and the same way that, you know, uh, Ray finds his portrayal in Constant Gardener when he goes on the investigation for his murdered wife, he, 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 you know, he's definitely pushing himself to the limit, but he's never outside the, the bounds of sort of the character that we meet early on. Right. And I felt like that was true here. I don't know if you, that was a mm-hmm. lot of thoughts. I don't know if you have any mm-hmm. comments on that. No, no, I agree with that. Yeah. So, um, uh, okay. So uh, there's six episodes, and as a lot of reviewers pointed out, the miniseries is really the ideal way to to do like a Lacare esque project. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, you know, I think Constant Gardener is an almost flawless film, uh, but for this book in particular, um, uh, Night Manager. 
excuse me. Um, it, I mean, this was the perfect length. It was six hours, you know, which is mm-hmm. two to three movies. Um, so it was in fact co-produced by BBC and AMC. And I should say oh, okay. that all six episodes in England had 10 million viewers wow. per episode. Wow. And the UK has what a population of 80 million, a hundred million, something like that. It's a lot. That's yeah, that is a lot. No, viewers. So, so the big thing they had to change, and we'll have to look back at the book at some point to see what it was initially, was to set it in the Egyptian, rev- or, or initially to be set in the 2011 Egyptian, and put in quotes, revolution. Mm-hmm. That famously backfired. And what's great about the movie is you think they're never going to revisit the consequences of Egypt five years later, but they very much do mm-hmm. um, at the end. Um, and... Uh, uh, Tom Hiddleston's character, Jonathan Pine, who had been a, a former uh, British soldier in Iraq, uh, works as a night manager in a really nice hotel in Egypt. Um, he uh, stumbled during the revolution. There's a, a beautiful middle-aged woman named Sophie who he comes across who seems to be in great danger. They have a tryst together. Turns out she's the mistress of a playboy named Freddie Hamid. Um, whose wealthy family is very influential in uh, Cairo and in Egypt, uh, which is important because those were the people who were, you know, supposedly being overthrown at the time. Of course, it didn't turn out that way ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get back to that. Uh, and she gives him, it very openly tells him to look at um, some secret documents, which turn out to have a really ugly list of, of weapons uh, and warfare chemicals, <laughs> including napalm, which I thought was excessive, you know, but, you know, they really wanted to hammer home how horrible this list of weapons and, and warfare chemicals were. Um, he turns the documents, uh, Jonathan Pine turns the documents over to what they call the International Enforcement Agency, the IEA in England, which is part of MI6, but they have their sort of their own. Um, Mission? What's the word I'm looking for? They have their own uh, charter, yeah. I think is yes, the word. Yes, charter. For. Charter, right. Yeah. And that indirectly results in Sophie's death because someone finds out about that information getting out. Jump four years later, um, and uh, the, the woman who got that information and who was tormented by it and who's been trying to hunt down Hugh Laurie's horrible arms dealer, arms dealer character, Richard Roper, for like 10 years, um, keeps follow, keeps tabs on uh, Jonathan Pine, who now moves to Switzerland and tries to hide his past. He has a really, really uncomfortable and epic uh, confrontation with Roper who happens to come to his hotel in Switzerland in a combination of being horrified by Roper and digging up memories of the one, the murdered woman and the list, and then being contacted by Olivia Coleman's character. She convinces him to sign on. I think I got that pretty good. Yep. That's, that's pretty much it. So uh, do we buy um, at the end of episode one, the relative quickness to which he agrees to overturn his entire life, basically risk being a true criminal going to jail, being killed and maybe accomplishing nothing else in his life. Yeah. I think that you see in, in episode one, he, he's, he's a very sensitive guy. He, he really does um, in, in an unusual way and in a somewhat unusual way falls in love with, with this woman who comes forth with this this awful document, and then because they have what's I would say more more than a tryst, but maybe not a whole lot more than a tryst because they don't have that much time together. Um, he he feels uh, he's overwhelmed with guilt that that 
he was responsible really for her murder because the guy in the British government that he gave the document to let it be known to somebody who he didn't know was kind of a double agent and that it, it got her got her her murdered back in 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 Cairo so he I think he's you know he's been overwhelmed for four years by the guilt of, of her of her murder and he's ready to try to expiate the guilt absolutely and I, and I don't think I, I don't think either. it's it's that big of his big of a sell. I mean, it's it's not that big of a sell for o- Olivia Coleman's uh, character Angela Burr no. to no. to to turn to turn him. No, that's their spooks. That's what they do. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was one of the key things for his background, seeing you know Richard Roper's weapons in Iraq, essentially was you know again a non traditional way of using his military background is just as motivation. Um, to take on this role yes he also comes from a a, a military family so he's Mm -hmm. very much a you know a god and country kind of guy yep and uh so in the second episode he agrees um and uh they have to get him a new identity um he has various names including uh, jack linden and then thomas quince i think thomas quince tom right yeah uh, which is funny because there's a very talented Mr. Ripley thing going on in this with his uh, secret identity w- within the family of who believes him and who doesn't. And just always mm-hmm. remember, uh, it always reminds me of Philip Seymour Hoffman who never buys, you know, Tom Ripley's story. Right. Tommy, right. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. <laughs> <laughs> just screwing with him. Um, and uh, so the, basically the, the the beginning of episode two, and I have to say that I was in it at this point, but there was a little bit of choppiness getting him into the compound. Once he's in the compound in Spain mid episode two, I was completely hooked for the rest of the time. I just mm. didn't know how they were going to get him there. So basically they, they have him establish a violent cover identity mm-hmm. by giving him an, you know, another fake identity, which he's never even going to keep for that long in order to put him on the run and getting him to Spain, um, you know, where he's again changed his identity. Of course, this is all planned. He has to trick a girl who he has to seduce. He has to do some kind of nasty stuff. Now, he doesn't kill. They fake a murder, essentially, I think. Yes, yes. They fake a murder, but he does sleep with a girl and then just leave her, Um, you know. And uh, did you... um, uh, And then, well, I'll just finish this this little uh, string, which is... You know, then they they have him as part of the kitchen staff in Spain uh, around the Roper compound, and then they have a fake, uh, you know, k- kidnapping of the son uh, of Hugh Laurie's character, uh, uh, Roper's son, and then have Hiddleston be the one to save the son. Um, I-, I could even tell at the time that it was th- before we even see Hiddleston. I, I kind of knew where that was going that they were going to do a fake kidnapping. Um, and you know, they kind of, uh, they're able to finesse it, I think by Hiddleston going overboard and then them really almost killing him, even though that wasn't part of the plan. Mm-hmm. And that actually works in his favor to be hospitalized and almost dead in, in terms of selling the story because yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so I don't know. Did you uh, were you were you buying this this whole ruse at, at the time? Um, but more importantly, would you buy that they would buy what, what happened? Now, of course, Corky, who we'll get to, did, never buys it. But for the most part, they buy it. 
Yeah, I think um, that it was a it was a pretty well executed con, even though it ended up going more overboard than they had scripted it. Mm-hmm. I think it was a well executed con, and because it had to do with Laurie's son, with Richard Roper's son, um, R- Richard Roper it, it really grabbed him. Uh, uh, the heroics of Hiddleston's character, uh, saving, s- seemingly saving his son, and and um, I think also Richard Roper's incredible girlfriend, uh, played by Elizabeth Debicki, uh, mm-hmm. Jed, the, the 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 character Jed, um, who who's in love with this son. I mean, just lo- loves him. It has to do with her her checkered past as well and uh yeah so i think i think it was a well-executed con i i i'm i'm believing that that roper uh bought it and the jed bought it and uh i was fine with it and what ultimately sold it to me and i think those was their plan because you're going for the middle few episodes, which we'll get to, where he's hanging around the compound, getting closer to everyone, the same way Tom Ripley tries to sidle up to Gwyneth Paltrow and Jude Law and everybody, mm-hmm. um, to, is, um, you know, Roper's playing a long con of grooming this guy for conning other people. Yes. And that was yes. not apparent to me at all early on. And so, w- when you realize why he's keeping him around, and I think, Dad, that is why... Olivia, I mean, this is so brilliant. Olivia Coleman knew that R- Roper would only, let's put it this way. Olivia Coleman had no way of knowing if and who Roper would trust, but she did know he wouldn't trust a squeaky clean person. Mm-hmm. That, that Roper would only trust someone who's a, a scoundrel and a rogue like he is, I think was the, the planning, even though they never explicitly say it like that way. No, I, I think that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, again, I, I won't bring up this connection again because here's where it's split. The difference between Miss Talented Miss Ripley and this is the end game for Ripley was just to be accepted into the society. Yeah. The, the end game for this was obviously a very specific goal that would result in, you know, the death or imprisonment of these bad guys. Yep. We'll get to that. Um, and uh, it's an interesting psychological thing, Dad, to, you know, um, to, to discuss whether, you know, it's easier to con someone if the con itself is the end game versus mm-hmm. if you're conning them to gain something else. Right. Um, and that will, uh, not, without spoiling anything, that sort of psychological thing ha- happens in uh, M- Marius's head in Sneaky Pete at, at, at certain points mm-hmm. where he's trying to figure out what he really wants, who he's conning and why. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's kind of fun to look back with the con mentality to what's going on here. So anyways, so he ends up there, he ends up in the hospital. They're all very thankful that he saved Roper's son. It's not clear what, how much Roper really loves his son. I think this is a classic case of p- rich and powerful people love their children because they're their children. Like, they'll kill their own kids, but they won't let anyone else kill their kids. Yeah. You know, like the same way he won't anyone, uh, Roper won't let anyone near his wife, but he's allowed to, you know, beat her if he wants to kind of thing. Well, I think it's, I think it's for, for a narcissist and, and sociopath like this, the kid is, is kind of like a trophy. You know, he's a, he's a great looking kid. He's very well behaved. You know, he goes to his, uh, what in Britain they call public school, being private school, right. probably goes to Eaton or, or someplace like, like that. And so he's kind of a, a trophy kid, and and he knows that his girlfriend is crazy about the kid. So th- that's nice for for Roper too. And um, yeah, 
Yeah, so Roper is not completely sold at first. He knows him from, recognizes him from Switzerland, even though it had been, I guess it would have been, what, six months maybe before? Um, and, uh, oh, that's right, I forgot, we missed the big detail, which was, mm. as his last act as night manager of Switzerland, he specifically stole all sorts of stuff from the hotel to get his bad record going. Right, right. To that's help part sell of the what, transition to, to Spain, right. yeah. Right, that's part of what a- Angela Burr from M- MI6 or the internet, what, what did you call it, e- international? International Enforcement Agency. Enforcement Agency, right, I- IEA. It was all part of the plan to, to get him a, uh, an authentic criminal record. Yeah. So, um, so there's just a lot of sort of healing and discussion about whether he's r- for real or not. Also, the, uh, towards the end of episode two, um, it begins the the important subplot uh, about whether MI6 is compromised by the arms trade, which of course it turns out to be, um, mm-hmm. well, just the entire British government, but specifically riv- what they call Riverhouse uh, yeah. w- w- MI6, because I guess it's on the the Thames River, right? So yes, it's on the Thames, right? Yeah, the Thames. Uh, and so, um, and then we, in episode three is where things really get going, and that's where I got super hooked. I was planning on watching three and then three. Um, and then I got super hooked on episode three. So <laughs> this is where Jonathan, who's mostly healed up, has to share his carefully crafted backstory um, in a convincing way. And Jonathan keeps pr- protesting as if he wants to leave. Jonathan, yes. a- aka Thomas, you know. And this is, of course, a critical move, which was you know to uh, to, to to play hard to get, essentially, right? Right. Um, and then, you know, they specifically blow his cover at, back in England, you know, it, like, so now, like, Interpol is looking for him. So now Roper thinks he has the upper hand because he, he doesn't realize how, how long um, Thomas's, Jonathan slash Thomas's con is. And so Roper now thinks, right, he's got the upper hand, essentially, because, well, now you have nowhere to run, so you have to stay here as, like, a fugitive. Right. And that begins, I think, Dad, sort of a two-episode bit where we're mostly hanging out in Spain, where he's starting to develop relationships with a little boy, with the wife, who he really tries hard not to fall in love with, but, of course, ends up falling in love with. She's not not the wife. She's the... The girlfriend. Right. She's a courtesan. To courtesan. Um, Basically. Does he have a wife that we ever hear about? Yes, because you hear the son goes off at some point to yes. to visit mom. Right, to go home to yeah. mom. He he only visited, visits his dad once in a while on, on school vacations. So I'll just kind of group the next two together. We just talk about some of the characters. So this is where we meet the whole cast of characters. Yeah. Um, yeah. We meet the banker um, and uh, uh, the, the, um, the Spanish banker who ends right. up being essentially the weak, weakest or most important weak link to the organization and is compromised uh, by Olivia Coleman's character. Um, let's see, Juan Apo, Apostol. Yes. Um, and right. also his, his daughter hangs herself out of just misery of being a, a mob daughter, I suppose. Correct. Uh, it was very disturbing. And that's yeah. ultimately what allows Olivia Coleman to... Uh, to um god i'm blanking on all my cia terms t- today to to put pressure on on him to squeeze him excuse me uh-huh 
Um, and uh, we meet Corky, the short, gay, quippy uh, s- s- sidekick who's both loyal and stupid uh, of Richard Roper's. He's not stupid. He he he's in fact he's he's quite clever and foxy and smart. But he he's he's an alcoholic, for one, and for two, he's um he can get uh, distracted by by men, um, mm-hmm. and alcohol. And he, yeah, and, he, and his judgment goes, but he's very smart, very yeah. crafty. No, he's extremely smart. He's the one who knows it's, from the beginning that, that, that Pine is, is full of shit. I meant dumb in terms of reckless at the wrong times. Okay. It, it's the other two. You know, there's three. There's kind of three henchmen, Frisky and Tabby and Corky. <laughs> yeah. And, the other and, guys are just muscle, basically. Right. The, yeah. the other two guys, Frisky and Tabby, they're, they're just muscle. Yep. But Corky... You know, Corky is like a pit bull, and he's certain that there's something rotten in Denmark about Hiddleston's character. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, R- Roper Roper assigns him to to try to to try to uh, discover whether whether Hiddleston's uh, for real or, or not. And he he really go, goes after it aggressively, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, the the most loyal. Um uh, sidekick, uh, I guess, is Sandy, who's the money guy. Yeah, he's the money guy. Very, very proper I- Englishman. Yep. They, who knows? They, they, they probably went to, to public school together. Yep. Him, him, and him and Richard Roper. And Sandy, uh, unlike Richard Roper, although he's very controlling of his his lady, uh, doesn't sleep around. Sandy very much sleeps around and drives his wife off, and she becomes a security problem. Right. Um, actually, what this show shares slightly uh, with Sneaky Pete Dad is that the only reason the cons in both cases end up being effective is that the people that they're trying to con are way more dysfunctional than they had even thought in the beginning. Mm. I mm-hmm. mean, I think that's one of the cool parts of Night Manager is you know that Tom Hiddleston uh, as Thomas or Jonathan is going to have lots of challenges. But you don't really know from the beginning how dysfunctional the inner circle is because you always think of these big mob operations as well-oiled machines, right? Right, right. But but Jonathan Pine, Hiddleston's character, is so very smart that he knows how to find the chinks in in, in the armor. So he he comes to understand Jed and how to how to work her and bring her in into the thing, and he he knows how to how to ultimately deal with with corky mm-hmm. um well kind of kind of knows how to deal with corky but he ends up having to, to murder him but uh he, he keeps him at bay for a bunch of weeks mm-hmm. which is diff- very difficult well he tries to even corky protect is corky like corky he's sometimes, yeah. right yeah yeah i mean i think you know what you learn when you when you um watch real good con men like Marius or like Tom Hiddleston's character versus say Walter White is, uh, you know, to, to pull off extended cons, you need to lie as little as possible. So part of what the writing dad, I want to ask you specifically about this, the writing and performance of Tom Hiddleston is that there's at least a couple dozen questions that are asked to him point blank by the Roper other people. And he rarely completely lies, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like they say, like, if you want to beat a lie detector that, you know, if you, if you can convince yourself to believe it, then you'll believe the, the lie detector. 
mm-hmm. but if you can also sort of distract uh, the question, uh, reorient the question, you know, mm-hmm. you can confuse mm-hmm. it enough. And so Hiddleston becomes a man of few words because he doesn't want to give himself away or draw undue attention to himself. But he also, when he's yeah. asked direct questions, usually is honest. Yeah. Other than, of course, like, are you spying on us kind of thing? But right. They, so what do you think was sort of the turning point um, uh, uh, of the relationship with, with Roper? Where it went from, I'm not sure I trust you, to I'm starting to trust you, to you're going to be my guy and maybe even re- uh, replace Corky. Which, by the way, was a brilliant scheme that Olivia Coleman hatched. Olivia Coleman hatched after flipping the banker, the Spanish banker. He had the, she had the Spanish banker drop that they weren't so happy about Corky's uh, alcoholism and so forth. And thereby the, and laying that, the seeds to, of destruction. Absolutely, and uh, that was huge. That yeah. that was that was huge in in getting Roper to ultimately trust Pine. Um, it was a combination of of Corky was never able to turn up any hard evidence through all the research they did, plus those seeds that were planted about uh, suspicions about Corky's lo- loyalty and trustworthiness and judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And so, but what, but what, what, I mean, does, does, do you think Roper sees something in, uh, in, uh, Thomas, uh, Jonathan slash Thomas's, uh, like see something in himself in him, if that makes sense? I well, mean, that, yeah. yeah, that, that was the third point I, I, I meant to, I meant to yeah. comment on in that he, he came to, he came to see, I think Hiddleston's great intelligence and and ultimate utility to uh, to Roper's uh, enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, he and, and and Hiddleston, you know, Hiddleston was a is a, I mean, Jonathan Pine was a very talented guy, and was capable of of leading uh, the con that that Roper you know wanted him to lead, and and Roper gained a tremendous amount of confidence in in pine's abilities so that that was a third big factor in why roper you know wanted to believe uh the con uh wanted to see pine as authentic and 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 the the genuine article Mm -hmm. because he was going to be so much of so much use to to roper and what he he needed to Mm -hmm. to accomplish in this in this arms deal Mm -hmm. this this complex arms deal that they they were um, uh, executing. I, I don't have too many criticisms of the show. Uh, um, you know, there is the one part uh, in the second to last episode where they actually go to Turkey. Sort of the the, the homelandy episode is the one where mm-hmm. they go to Turkey mm-hmm. and there's an arm shipment and they put on a big, dis- really scary display of all the weapons and Tom Hiddleston's feeding the information. Uh, you know, Pine's feeding the information to uh, I, the IEA and MI6, and it turns out to be a a, a um, uh, a ploy, um, you know, a feint uh, by yes. Roper, uh, you know, although they blame it on Corky, Quir- who's now dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I, we've skipped over a little bit, but by episode five, Roper is starting to lose his brains a little bit. And he's making mm-hmm. some stupid mistakes, like bringing his wife out into the battlefield and, you know, and uh, and, and so forth. Um, and there's an exchange where, 
you know, he, he, where Hiddleston says, basically, I'm not into men, I'm not into women, I'm not into drinking, and, and, uh, Hugh Laurie just says, well, I don't trust a man who doesn't have appetites, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. th- it seemed like a mistake for Hiddleston to not have, like, it almost would have made more sense uh, within the story for Pine to admit to him that he had a crush on his wife, because that would have seemed more believable than faking that you didn't. Um, well, but I think yeah. part I think part of uh, Pine's seduction of Roper mm-hmm. was um, that that Roper did admire how self possessed Pine was, and yeah, he has this this rule of thumb about appetites. But I think he was really impressed with how self possessed Pine yeah. was. Yeah, and you know he makes a point about how in this one case he's having blind faith in this guy. Um, yeah, yeah. I think the other maybe missed opportunity, and this is probably for time. This would be something if they had eight or nine or ten episodes, they would have been have more time for. It would be to have Pine be his confessor a little bit, um, to have Hugh Laurie's character Roper sort of mm-hmm. unload his burdens, and that be you know, part, I mean, almost exactly like Athelstan um, in in Vikings, for example. Right. Right. To yeah. be more of a uh, consigliere to uh, uh, to yeah. Roper's character, yeah. But like you know, like Athelstan was was actually never working th- either Ragnar or Eckberth straight up. Um, but he could have been. I mean, you know, he was he was in deep there. Um, I, I wonder if the sort of uh, you know, a, 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 and we kind of learn through the show uh, that Tom Hiddleston is sort of you know emotionally dead inside. As you might expect, to someone of his experience, he, you know, he says, "I got nothing, well, I got no, nothing to I, lose." I, I think he he knew how dangerous his mission was, and he was trying not to let his his emotions take over at any point. Although he he realized that he was starting to fall off of that thing with Jed. I mean, he was really starting to yeah to get uh, seduced by by her. By her beauty and by her damsel and distressness, mm-hmm. um, and Roper was starting to pick up on uh, on that, and that's part of the reason why Roper started to lose his brain a little bit, as you said in in, in episode five, because he was starting to get um, suspicious of Jed and what she was doing, and uh, her her loyalty or mm-hmm. potential disloyalty. So, yeah, I guess also like between Hiddleston's mastering. Uh, very quickly, the ability to be the, the the leader of this new fake corporation and his knowledge of weaponry, um, you know his 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 ability to to morph uh, into all these roles so quickly and effectively, I guess convinced Roper that you know he he was as hungry for power as as Roper was. Yeah. And so he yes. could trust him based just on that. Right. He, he was so di- diligent in what Roper asked him to do that, again, that's, that's really seductive for a guy like, like Roper. I also think there's just the, the youth, the youth and attractiveness of Pine, you know? I mean, Roper's sort of entering post-middle age and surrounded by all these old guys who he's been around forever. I think there was an element of, I need young, fresh blood, like it didn't take long for him to semi dump Corky, right? I mean, it was almost like he had been considering it even before all that happened. Yeah. Um, and then, 
And then, yeah, and then, you know, it all comes together in episode six where they go back to Cairo, back to the hotel, and they tie up all the loose ends and they, they, they pull the final, the final con um in in egypt um and it mostly has a has a happy ending i mean we even get revenge on the the the, the killer of tom hiddleston's egyptian lover from the first yes. episode and yes you know, right. that's the only time he straight up well, i guess he murders corky but that's more of a necessity of the moment he he didn't have to murder that that um horrible egyptian uh, rich guy for right. the plan to work that was actually probably uh endangered the plan um, yes although you know at that point pine was thinking 90 steps ahead and so it was able to work it into the plan mm-hmm. hamid yeah freddie hamid um and uh and, and they basically pull it off um and uh you know i think for me this is uh this is a show that feels mostly realistic but is 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 really uh hits 10 out of 10 status based on on writing and performance for me Mm -hmm. um like it does feel a little homelandy in just the sense you need to suspend disbelief at a couple quick a couple turns um but uh I, i think it does end up feeling a little bit more realistic and gritty than homeland um well you know you know john john le carre didn't become the hugely best-selling author in, in this subgenre by, by accident i mean he he knows how to spin these kind of tales he he was uh, an inside guy i think back he was mi6 way way back he knows all about this stuff and yep. he, he sells his stories pr- pretty well they they don't have a whole lot of holes in them yep and it turns out that both the americans and the um the Brits are in on the arms trade. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a great supporting performance by, speaking of Homeland, by David Harewood, um, who played Estes in the first two seasons of right. Homeland as a much different version of the same character in terms yes. of being in the CIA. In this one, yes. he's just an out-and-out good guy who's willing to risk his entire reputation for his friend Olivia Coleman. They have some sort of past together, which they don't dwell on, which is great. I love when they do that in, in movies and TV shows. We don't need to know all the details. Um, and... Uh, He's also the head of the security agency in Supergirl, so apparently he has that look to him. Um, and uh, th- they're very funny together, I thought, David Harewood and Olivia Coleman. Yes, very. You know, him being just a total supportive, like, lapdog, and her, you know, constantly running all over the place and, and flailing around trying to make some, some shit stick to the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, again, I, I think for me, when, when I think about it, you know, uh, Hiddleston has such an understated performance that, that Laurie's performance is, is just the one that sticks out. It's not that it's better. It's just that, you know, it, it was so, uh, virtuosic that character Roper he he made my skin crawl every time he was on screen, even yes. when he was being charming. Especially yes. when he was being charming, made, absolutely yes. made my skin crawl. Yeah, right, to- totally creepy. And 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 Olivia Coleman's performance yes. is, is really un- really understated, which is what she does so so well. Um, yeah. But uh, between her and Hiddleston, I mean, just gr- just tremendous performances. She's yeah. she's so phenomenal the way she possesses a, a role, like she did in Broadchurch, like she does in this. She's amazing. Yep. Um, yeah. And little things too, like there's a running gag about her husband who she doesn't really love or claim she doesn't really love. And they're, they're about to have a baby, even though she appears to be like 50, but I don't know. But, um, uh, 
but uh and you think it's just like a throwaway character thing and he ends up almost getting killed because of her you know yes. uh, messing around and stuff and you end up feeling horrible for this guy who you haven't even met just because of her you know her great <laughs> performance um but my guess is if you if you ask hilston he, he he was probably just knowing how he talks about older actors storied actors that he works with that he was you know he would probably say he was in awe of, of hugh laurie's performance Mm-hmm. Um, and he was clearly feeding off of it, and it really took the pressure. Not that there was pressure on Hiddleston, and not that he couldn't have handled it anyways with with a less talented actor than Hugh Laurie, but it does take the pressure off him a little bit because he can sort of, like his character, sort of passively, not passively, but sort of be reactionary to what Hugh Laurie's doing, right? So mm-hmm. Hugh, it's like mm-hmm. Hugh Laurie's always serving the ball, like in tennis, and, you know, and, and, and Pine, uh, Pine's character is always sort of, you know, trying to return the serve. Um, and, uh, yeah, they just had great chemistry. I love that they kept finding way. Well, I guess in episode one and two, they, they found the ways to have scenes with Olivia Coleman and Tom Hiddleston. And then of course in six, when it all comes together, um, it was great. I do think that the tone, the shifting of the tone episode to episode while still being consistent was really cool. Like the, you know, the post-apocalyptic wasteland in season five, episode five is very mm-hmm. different from the sort of whodunit of the final episode. Right. But yes, um, like I could see how it would work episodically. Yeah. It's sort of a, an interesting r- rhythm that they, that they established with the, uh, you know, go from Cairo to Switzerland to Majorca. To, it's just it's just an interesting r- rhythm uh, to, to the whole thing, um, both in terms of the the visuals and and the pacing. I mean, it's just it's great. It's great. And a couple a couple other performances we really should yeah. should should mention are Elizabeth Debicki as Jed Marshall. I mean, she, I thought she I didn't know her from from a hole in the wall, and uh, I have no idea about her career, but she was stupendous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I thought in, in a very difficult role. Yeah. I mean she she may have she may have had to display more range than a- anybody else. In terms of uh, being, uh, uh, you know, Laurie's victim and captive, uh, uh, fi- figuratively uh, mm-hmm. captive, but li- literally his victim, and uh, the, the range of her emotions was tremendous. And then I just, you know, I, I said offline a, a couple times as we've talked about this show, I love Corky, mm-hmm. Tom Tom Hollander uh, playing the sadistic gay guy. Uh, it was phenomenal to to watch him. I, I couldn't get enough of him. I mean that that whole that whole lobster uh, dinner yeah. thing. I mean, I, you know, Jesus. That, that, that scene would go so wrong in, in the hands of lesser filmmakers and lesser actors. It was gripping. That would be so hammy, and yet it's yeah. so tense. You think he's going to start killing people in the restaurant? Yeah, right. I, I right. did. I thought oh, yeah, it was absolutely. Close. Yeah, absolutely. It was an amazing scene. He's also just as an aside. He's he he plays a very interesting uh, character in Taboo as as well. Yep. Um, just really quickly uh, about Debecky. Um, she also has done theater um, in oh. 2013. Um, she's Australian. Um, oh, she's Australian. Okay. And so in 2013, when she was uh, 22. Um, Good. She played alongside Kate Blanchett and Isabel Huppert. Wow. In a major wow. Sydney theater uh, production. 
wow. the maids and won the best newcomer award at the Sydney Theater Awards. So she's wow. she's 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 heading. I don't know if Kate Blanchett is personally <laughs> grooming her, but she's headed in that direction, I believe. Well, and hopefully she, has she that can Kate do- Blanchett thing that she does with her body where she's so comfortable and loosey-goosey yeah um uh, her only uh, challenge is going to be her height she's so damn tall that it's going to be hard to cast her with a a lot of male leads so she's four inches taller than most of them that's true that's true um she is going to be in guardians of the galaxy um and, and to me she does it was reminiscent in the face of karen gillen who of course is also in guardians of the galaxy as as gamora's sister nebula um she's called aisha so i think she's gonna end up being another sister of theirs oh i see um and then she's got a um a bunch of uh film roles that are in filming or post-production are coming uh, down the line it seems like she's trying to be mostly stage and film this was one of only three tv roles that she's done oh she's uh she's six foot three so i mean well wiki says six two but i i would go with the six three because usually if you're really tall they shave an inch and if you're short they add an inch uh, yes right right you know, like scarlett johansson's listed as like five two or five three or something it's like mm, i don't think so Right. Um, she was nominated uh, for Critics' Choice uh, Award um, for The Night Manager. Oh, good. For Best Supporting Actress. And we will certainly be tracking her career. Yeah, um, yeah it's great. I mean, it's really interesting because you've got two, of, you've got a, a, a veteran actor in Hugh Laurie that everyone in America and England knows his face with a, 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 a great role at this point in his career. You've got mm-hmm. someone like Olivia Coleman, who, you know, true TV fans know, especially people who love British television, um, and is, is beloved, despite the fact that, to say the least, she does not look like a typical Hollywood actress. Right. Which is part of what's endearing about her. Absolutely. Although I think, even though Debecky is beautiful by many standards, I, I think it helps the character that is, she is kind of tall and lanky and awkward. Um, you know, it made her both stronger and more fragile at the same time, it seemed to mm-hmm. me, which I mm-hmm. thought was really interesting. Well, I think what they wanted to do was they wanted to give him a, a supermodel trophy, you know, a, a girlfriend. And, and uh, so I think she was well cast in, in that way for her, her, her physical presence. Cause she, she does look like and carry herself like a, a supermodel. She wears clothes like nobody's business. Mm-hmm. Everything on her looks stunning, you know, mm-hmm. so. Well, you should also know that she, uh, her father is Polish, her mom's Irish, she was born in Paris, her parents were both ballet dancers, and she can dance, so... Uh, yes. You, when you're that tall and lanky, you kind of need a dancing background, almost, to be able yep. to... Because it, it was never... It was noticeable, but it was never distracting. Like, when you told me she was 6'2", 6'3", I was really surprised. I was thinking, I was thinking 5'10", 5'11", based oh, really? on how they yeah. dressed her. Now, if you notice, she wasn't wearing heels a lot, because that's just stupid. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, as a 25, 26-year-old, you know, she's got, I think she's got a long, long career ahead of her. So, all right, cool. Well, I'm glad we finally talked about that. They're, yes, They've yes. said they're going to do um, a... Uh, they have said that they are going to do a season two. Any theories? I would. I mean, now his his cover's blown, right? But he could take a new identity. Would that sort of be the way to way to do, to do a, a second season? Well, uh, yeah, I think they they could put him on a completely different kind of of a mission. Uh, um, that where you know his his identity could 
you know, would, would would be uh, disguised in, in a different way. Uh, it wouldn't be an arm. It's not going to be an arms deal. It'll be something completely different, probably. Oh, but right. hopefully, uh, hopefully they bring Olivia Coleman back to, to, to run it, mm-hmm. and then they'll just have to change up the entire villain crew. They they constructed such a great uh, villain crew. Uh, you know that that'll be the. I think that'll be the biggest challenge for the for the uh, the second season is how, how to replace. Uh, Richard Roper and Sandy and Frisky and, and Corky yeah. and and and, San, and Sandy yeah. Sandy and actually, Frisky to Tab yeah and by the way the guy who played Sandy yeah um, whose yeah, name Alistair P- Petrie uh, Alistair Petrie or Petrie right. he plays one of the Rebel generals in uh, Rogue One uh-huh. and he has such great old fashioned good looks. Yes, I mean, he right. really looks like a like a old sport from the forties or fifties. Yep, which is exactly what you want for Rogue One. I remember how striking he he looked just like an, a rebel general from the seventies mm-hmm. in the original Star. You know, they they really went out of their way to cast men and women uh, who look like they were would have been in the original Star Wars movie. So he was great right. in that small role. Also, he's a lord. They don't really talk about that in the show. He's he's nobility. Um, oh, okay, and uh, it would have been interesting whether there was a connection to the corruption inside the government with his connections to the nobility. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, sometimes you have so much great character material, you just can't fit it all in. And right. I think that Hiddleston and Olivia Coleman have such amazing chemistry. You could really sick those two on any number of storylines. Right. Well, she came back from multiple seasons of Broadchurch, so so hopefully uh, uh, they'll they'll get her back for the second season of uh, yeah. of Night Manager. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks, Dan. Right. Uh, are, are you could you do five minutes or just a couple of really quick hits? Sure. Um, you finally saw Medici. Yes, I did. Um, and uh, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we had a similar experience in being fascinated at first not sure whether it was going to be really good but did get better as it went along despite some flaws because of some really cool characters and because of the setting yeah it was uh it was a great historical period piece i loved all all the florence stuff from the where were we 16th century Mm -hmm. um something like that uh Th- they did a beautiful job with that. It must have been uh, a non-trivial budget <laughs> to to create that o- over eight episodes. Um, I think the uh, you know the the plot was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't you know it wasn't a stunning plot, and I didn't fall in love with a lot of the characters. Mm-hmm. But um, I loved the the lead woman who uh, is a contessina. Um, uh, Cosimo Medici, mm. Medici's wife. She's fabulous. She was terrific. Yeah. Uh, just, a, just a great, uh, a, a great woman protagonist hero. And uh, I loved his bodyguard. Uh, oh uh, yes, Mar- Marco Bello. Marco Bello was yep. tremendous. Mm-hmm. Just a tremendous character. Totally looks free- like a medieval knight from Italy. Yeah. So, Totally, yeah. totally, and uh, you know Brian Cox is always great to watch. Great, he played yeah. a, a, an important role, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, other than that, you know, I thought his, I thought his, um, his, his courtesan, uh, Madalena was was really good. That was a very difficult part. Oh, the, red, she, the redhead, the redhead, yes. Yeah, I forgot about her. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I just—I have to say that I was really disappointed in Dustin yeah. Hoffman. 
Yeah. I thought he totally phoned it in. I mean, it was bad. I thought it was really bad. And, you know, I, I generally like him and his stuff. We were talking offline just before we started uh, the podcast about his role in Luck, yeah. that wonderful horse racing um, uh, drama that was on HBO for a season, but ill-fated because a couple of horses died in, in the production of it. And mm-hmm. the role that he played, I mean, talk about a great villain. I mean, that was a great, great role. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, everybody knows he, he's got the chops, but not, not in this one. He was awful. I think a couple things. I, I, I think it was less about phoning it in than it was about it was just a horrible casting. I mean, he, he can't <laughs> not sound like a Jewish guy from New York or whatever. And he tried to do an accent, which was stupid because no one else was trying to do an accent. I mean, the Italians spoke like Italians, the English actors and actresses, you know, like, spoke like Brits, yeah, right. which was right. smart, right? right? Who cares? Right. It's 2017. We get it, right? Yeah. I, it's, you know, the, the example I always use is, you know, Black Widow in the comics has a Russian accent, but like, why the hell would you want Scarlett Johansson trying to fake a Russian accent right. in your, you know, billion and a half dollar movie <laughs> franchise, right? Yeah. So yeah. they shouldn't have had him try and do the accent. He clearly was miscast for the role. Um, I, 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 I mean, he didn't seem dead in the eyes in that, in that sense. Um, it just, the writing wasn't good and it was bad casting. I remember actually looking up, I was like, God, how many episodes is he? And I was like, Oh, he's only in five episodes. And I mean, not just because of that, but starting Uh from the final three episodes, six, seven, eight is a really big jump. Um, and quality, I think. And mm-hmm. the lack of him is part of that. Um, I also, you know, it was a little difficult to watch Richard Madden be so emotionless because he plays this kind of stoic character in Game of Thrones, but he does lose his temper and he is a romantic guy. Um, you, you know, when they had the flashbacks with the woman that he's obsessed with early on in life? Yes. When he's a younger version of himself? Yeah. So if you triangulate the younger version of himself in Medici with the older version of himself, that's sort of his character. Like he's not that naive in Game of Thrones, but he does have those passions uh-huh. and he smiles and emotes more. I think they were just asking that of of him a lot. And hopefully, uh-huh. you know, with the new developments and, you know, maybe we'll see more of that and I would really urge people again to check out the uh, Amazon pilot of Oasis science fiction show, which is very quirky and dark and, and bizarrely funny and weird and a little creepy on Amazon. I think it's going to get approved. I don't know if it's going to be as successful as Sneaky Pete, which went through the same process. But Richard Madden is Scottish, and when he gets to be Scottish and he's playing sort of a uh, a, a really eccentric priest who only became oh. a priest because his hmm. wife died and his wife had been religious, and when his wife died, he just said fuck it and the you know mm. um and so it's not like he had been a priest his whole life and and he gets but he's involved in politics and he's just able to be more himself um I see. so i think it helped me having seen having had seen him in you know three seasons of, of game of thrones where he actually when he gets killed in game of thrones and one of the most famous if not the most famous episode um was really when the series lost me and it wasn't just because they killed him but like that was the final straw because he was the last guy that i was sort of rooting for that had any agency Mm -hmm. um in the show so um but you know like night manager um uh the medici got seven million italians a night um to watch that show and it was an italian production and so when you have all these mismatched accents i mean my guess is the italians probably thought dustin hoffman was better than we did i mean (laughs) you know when it's it's being made by people in 
non-English speaking lands, even if it's in English, it, there's going to yeah. be some awkwardness. And I think, you know, what it lacked in, in writing and casting in some areas, it, their access to, not just their access to all these amazing Italian uh, cities and sites, but their understanding mm-hmm. of them and how to film them and their place in history, I thought was really cool. And, yeah. and the Medici family was pretty progressive early on before they became oh. like a mob. Yes, right, right. And I loved little things, like how they're constantly accused of being Jews for being moneylenders. <laughs> right. And how they just sort of brush it off, you know? They never yeah. they never take yeah. the bait or, or make some sort of comment about, like, sort of without saying it, they don't think what the Jews are doing is so wrong. Um, right. And, and so, uh, you know, there's, you know they, they were trying to empower the, 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 the lower classes and build a middle class and have, you know, I mean, the snobby, the not beyond snobby, elitist attitude of the you know italian nobles you can see why europe was stuck in the in the uh, middle ages for so long um yes. and, and of course i love that you know i i love that sort of the the main character is the city of florence and the cathedral uh, and that mm-hmm. that's his passion more than anything else yes and that it's not just it, it's not just a personal obsession but it represents to him you know what what you know italy could become Mm-hmm. Um, and the way it deals with, you know, the Black Plague and all of these historical issues in ways that doesn't get bogged down in too much. Right. Um, so, yeah, I thought I, I agree with pretty much everything you said. I, I think it was really good overall. Um, but it, it, if it wasn't for those last two or three episodes, you, you, I might be more on the fence about it. I think it, exactly. it, it, it right. finished strong. It did. It did finish strong. Yeah. It and, definitely and it's, did. And, and, and by the way, the final three episodes scored significantly higher than the rest of the season. Oh, good. I mean, it has good. an 8.0 on IMDb, which is very strong. But the final three episodes had 8.7, 8.5, 8.3. Um, so I, I think it was agreed upon. And the, the little popularity rating shows that it went up, you know, as as the episodes went on. And, and it, too, was renewed very, very quickly. So I think people were able to overlook some of the faults. And interestingly, then, my friend Noah Temple, who's normally yeah. a stickler for this sort of stuff, actually really liked the show. Um and for the same reason I did, which was ignoring some of the, the the problems with writing, because the filmmaking side was was pretty impressive at times. On right. what, what I think was actually a much smaller budget than maybe you and other people think, being oh, an really? Italian production. Yeah, I think they'll have much more money now that Netflix is because Netflix licensed it. Netflix wasn't going to release this. And I so see. now Netflix is an active partner. Maybe they'll have more money. Okay, two more really okay. quick questions, and we'll wrap up. Okay, one. So, I finally got you to watch a little bit of The Guild. Yes, right. And you, you had seen Felicia Day before on Tabletop and some other stuff, and you've seen Wheaton, and we've talked about how appealing Wheaton is. Um, just from your outside opinion, like, why, why Felicia Day, who, who does not seem like a likely candidate to be the, the nerd heroine that, that she's become? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's still... Uh, probably more than a few Felicia Day haters out there among amongst nerddom, right? Be- not very she, many. No? Not Ever very since many. The, the controversies in 2012 and 2014, they've been pretty shut down. All right, because you, you sent me that. Uh, that was from a couple, that was from like two or three years ago. Oh, that was from two or three years ago. Oh, I yeah. thought that was recent. No, no, no. That, that tweet you, you sent me or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, well, she's, she's very, I mean, I don't know. She's uh, endearing. She's uh, she's just naturally funny. She's naturally nice. She seems like you know, just a naturally nice person. Yep. She's attractive. 
Um, she's, you know, she's got a lot of intelligence. Then that that seeps through in lots of uh, different ways. So mm-hmm. she's very smart, mm-hmm. which I mean, I wouldn't. Have, I you know I did a little bit of reading about her in in Wiki and uh, she's got quite a quite a resume you know a valedictorian Juilliard graduated sixteen th- th- went to college yeah yeah, yeah. So, I mean she's so she's yeah. she's really a smarty pants and but carries it carries it very well mm-hmm. and um, she writes great stuff I mean it's so clever I, I had no idea what to expect uh, I had no idea what what a you know what uh, an early vlog was about mm-hmm. and uh you know w- w- what's an episode uh, 10 10 12 minutes or 8 minutes or yeah uh, they extended sh- each year they got a slightly longer okay uh, but right. ultimately it ended up being about 8 to 10 minutes uh, oh. ten, 12 8 to 10 minute episodes which i think works so- great yeah, she gets a lot done in eight yeah. or ten minutes, and uh, you know these six, seven characters that are members of her guild, uh, at least in, in season two. I mean, th- th- those are all the characters. I think in season two they expanded. One season three, I gather from what you said, when, when Wheaton brings in his old his own evil yeah. guild, <laughs> the axis um, of anarchy. <laughs> yeah, right. But you know the six characters are so nicely developed. It's very funny, mm-hmm. very clever. You know, I just. You know, it's it's pretty easy to like. I mean, you know, in addition to all that, which I agree, uh, Will Wheaton credits the Guild for rebooting his career. Um, oh. Joss Whedon has openly said that he, Dr. Horrible was directly influenced by the Guild, and he cast Felicia Day because he li- liked her and knew her from the Buffy days. They'd worked together before, but it wasn't like a reward for her good performance, you know, but it was like a, a semi-tribute to her. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. even the way Neil Patrick Harris talks into the the vlog camera and uh, and Doctor Horrible is exactly like she does in yes. the Guild. And right. Joss Whedon credits Doctor Horrible with rebooting his enthusiasm for filmmaking, and eventually, eventually was one of the major factors that landed him the Avengers. People think Buffy and Serenity and Firefly landed him the Avengers, but I've heard that Hollywood was very impressed with Doctor Horrible and how popular it was, and his ability to take big name stars like uh, oh. Nathan Fillion and Neil Patrick Harris and oh. have and have sort of a, a superhero property that doesn't take itself too seriously, but is exciting. Um, and so, you know, so she rebooted Will Wheaton's career. She will, she rebooted uh, Joss Whedon's <laughs> career. Um, and uh, actually when she got, when she get, when they get to season five of the guild, the, the whole um, season, they're at a comic book convention. I'm sorry, a, a video game convention or whatever, you know, comic con, which in, in, includes video games. Mm-hmm. And and uh, over the the previous couple of years, Felicia had been sort of asking uh, at real conventions to celebrity friends of hers if they would you know ever want to be in the show, and they all were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she thought you know most of them were just saying it to be nice, but she said when they actually came back around to asking all those celebrities to be in it, even for like two seconds, like mm-hmm. they actually were like turning famous celebrities away because of how many people were like, yeah, I meant it. I really love the guild. I want to mm-hmm. be in it or whatever. Mm. Um, also the fact that it was based on an actual world of Warcraft addiction that she had, um, mm-hmm. is, is clear. And she actually credits that for helping her get it off it. Although hilariously, most of the guy- people on the show didn't play world of Warcraft, but got into it through the show and through the fan community and so forth. 
I just want to say that on a personal note, I'm really glad World of Warcraft came out in 2004 instead of 1996 because I would have been in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I, mean, I, I played some of the very, very, very early version, free versions of that type, you know, online multiplayer right. role playing, right. you know, before. Right, right. I, but you know, I could have never imagined, uh, you know, what that would what that would become. And what's funny is, uh, you know, n- not only was Blizzard who makes World of Warcraft not, you know, um, not only were they not upset, but they embraced it, and they were invited to be the keynote speakers at like, the, you know, the next convention, and Microsoft signed them to a big deal after the first season that would be exclusive to xbox before they released on youtube so yeah they really tapped a nerve a nerve there um i also think you know the fact that it's a web show about the web being consumed by web users on the web mm-hmm. in some way it's a more direct to audience um that i mean it clearly is more direct to audience than television but it, it, on a meta sense if that makes sense right uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like, on television you're watching people who aren't aware of a fourth wall and that there's like a big distance between you, you know, on the guild, the fourth wall is kind of taken down and you're like directly interacting with those people. In fact, Felicia was planning on um, selling it as a show or trying selling it as a show after the first season. But after the, the feedback she got, she realized it needed to stay a web series. Um, so, um, yeah, it's pretty impressive. Uh, that, that whole crew. Um, okay. So I'll let you plug anything you want to plug coming up and then we'll sign out. How's, how's the Veep, uh, the new Veep season and anything else you want to recommend? Well, I think I've only seen one episode so far. Um, you know, she's out of office and now she's trying to raise money for her, her, her presidential library. And, uh, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they keep all the, uh, historic characters, Involved since she doesn't have an administration, but they they all seem to have some kind of a, a role mm-hmm. uh, post presidency. So the first episode was, was a scream. The, uh, my only criticism, uh, I would say, would be that the dialogue was even faster than it's been in in, in prior years. So it was, I was really tough for me to to keep up. I mean, it was rapid fire, hmm. um, but the uh, but the, the material was still very 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 funny. So uh, we'll we'll see. How, how, the, how the season un- unfolds, but they're off to a good start. Um, Hap and Leonard just came and uh, went. Yes. Uh, yeah. Second second season, six episodes. Um, I, I I watched it from the very beginning, and then the first season because you know we we know one of the uh, we know of one of the co creators of it, and uh, and plus uh, our pal Michael Kenneth Williams is in it. Yeah. Um, Omar from The Wire. Yeah. Uh, who we love. going to be in a Star Wars movie. I can't wait. He's going to be in the yeah. Han Solo movie. Holy shit. I mean, he is so good in this. He plays a a, a, a gay black uh, veteran uh, in the South, and he and his white childhood buddy um, – uh, it's, it's a really interesting take on, on, a, on a buddy show. Very different. It's very Southern. Uh, it's very funny. Um, there's a little bit of a – well, in the first season, there was a little bit of a kind of a horror hmm. thing to it. There, there was a, a fair amount of violence, uh, a lot of violence in the first season, less horror, less violence in, in, in the second season, hmm. a more subtle kind of convoluted plot uh, in the second season. But, but the, the buddy thing 
uh, is what, what drives it. And these two characters are very interesting, very funny, very compelling together, great chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll, I'll watch Michael K. Williams do, do anything. Um, uh, his white buddy, I've never heard of. I haven't done any research on his career. James uh, Purifoy, uh, who plays Hap Collins mm-hmm. to Michael K. Williams, Leonard Pine, Hap and Leonard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love it. I th- think they're coming back for a third season i i hope i mean they're short seasons they're only six episodes um probably because uh michael k is so busy with uh, yeah. doing so He's many different filming things star wars yeah yeah <laughs> among other so things. yeah um i i think uh, you know i i urge anybody to, to give it a try i would start with the first season um it's uh it's very different which you know it's not der- it doesn't feel derivative of anything uh, th- that I've ever seen so it, mm-hmm. it, it's great mm-hmm. and then uh, Better Call Saul just mm-hmm. started its what third season I think it's, mm-hmm. and it's for me it's remarkably different from the first two I don't know what Gilligan's doing uh, but I think he's experimenting with something the pace is very it's very slow you, I think you, you would hate it you'd probably hate it it's really really slow um and he's still, taking his sweet. Is he still actively showrunning the show, Gilligan? Let's see. Uh, series writing credits: Gilligan and Gould, mm. thir- thirty episodes as the creators. Right. So they're. Uh, not, I don't know. You know, yeah. like show showrunner stuff. I guess I don't, I don't know how how much they ha- they have their hands in it. Yeah. Gilligan has directed four episodes. Gould has directed three. So I mean, I don't know how much he's involved in it. I bet he's involved quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Seems. Like um. But it may be that the directors are. No, I don't know. They, they have so many directors. It can't be that. It's just it's got a different feel to it this this year. Um, but I mean, if if you if you've stuck with it for the first two seasons, if you liked it, and I and I did, um, then I don't know if the third season will chase you away. I guess it could, except now Gus is in the third season. So just seeing Gus again, um, although it's a lot of yeah. It's a little bit odd because, you know, he's older now than he was at the end right. of, uh, well, yeah, but this is before uh, Breaking Bad, right? This is the mm-hmm. le- leading up to, to the Breaking Bad era right. historically. So it's a little bit odd to see him older, but who, who cares? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, Vince Gilligan only directed five episodes of Breaking, Bla- uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, huh. Yeah, so. F- five of a ho- of a huge number of episodes, right? And to tie it all back around, and we'll close out. I uh, did Breaking Bad season one commentary a long, uh, long time ago. I ended up releasing the first two online, which I had forgotten I had done. Um, and my dad came mm-hmm. on for either episode three or four, and then episode seven, which is the finale. Uh-huh. And so I'm going to uh, get those other ones out there, and then I'll, I'll do like a blast, like a social media blast that those are available. Um, oh, good. And that'll be my second full show after Jessica Jones. Uh, of course, I got Firefly commentary with Matt coming out this summer. Right. And um, just really quickly, me and my dad uh, saw Logan again, loved it again, uh, maybe more emotional yes. the second time. Um, it was for me. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was convinced coming out the first time that it was a great movie, period. Not just a great comic book movie, but I'm mm. further in belief of that now. 
Yes. I, like, I really went in with like a movie eye the second time, a film, yes. a film eye. I'm like, this is just a brilliantly done movie. It really is. Yeah. Like, it feels like what a classic, classic Western must feel like from 50 years ago. You know, I think right. it will be looked back like that. And uh, um, we're going to see Guardians uh, this coming week. So, um, yeah. So, pa- Bizzlecast with Papa Bizzle to look forward to is uh, Bizzlecast Quickie on Guardians, Bizzlecast Quickie yeah. on Sneaky Pete, which I'm thinking you might be watching once we hang up here. Maybe not. I'm, go- uh, I'm going right back to going it. Going right back to it. <laughs> and then Orphan Black in June. So, thanks, Papa Bizzle. Enjoy you're Sneaky welcome. Pete. Um, oh, I guess you're welcome, or I'm sorry for getting you hooked on that. <laughs> no, the, the, the former for sure. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah. thanks. And thanks, listeners. And we'll be back at you soon. Bizzlecast out. All right. Thanks, Dad. Enjoy the show.